this is undisciplined. Academic by nature, undisciplined in practice. Now let's get into it. Matthew. Yes. Lynching. Mm-hmm. You've heard of recent discussions surrounding the Karens. Yes. Did you connect that back to lynching? I didn't, no. Oh, wow. What have you heard about the Karens? Or who are the Karens from your perspective? <laughs> when I think of Karens, are we talking about modern-day Karens? Ma- modern-day Karens. They are the folks who... This thing from Korea. <laughs> <laughs> Karens, to me, are the kind of women who go up to a service worker and ask for very unnecessary things, are very unsatisfied by the responses, and immediately ask to see your manager. <laughs> I demand to see it. Speak to the manager, yes. all the managers, right? So Megan Armstrong in the Hastian Women's Law Journal wrote this article about from lynching to the Central Park Karen case, mm. right? How white women weaponize white womanhood mm-hmm. makes that connection for us. So thank God we don't have to do it for ourselves. Good. Yes. And so she argues that in recent years, we've seen this influx of Karens, otherwise nicknamed white women gaining infamy on the internet. And though sometimes the behavior of these women is innocuous and merely entitled, the pejorative nickname Karen has become a term for white women engaging in racist behavior. Right? So you've heard about the scenario of the white woman calling the police, right? It's a typical scenario. Mm-hmm. The white woman calling the police and a black person for doing any number of harmless things. Looking Walk, at birds. Looking at birds. Walking a dog. Barbecuing. Remember mm-hmm. Barbecue Karen, right? They're recorded. They're called out on the internet. And uh, there was a slew of them being fired from their jobs because of the racism, right? So permit patty. Mm-hmm. You know, do you have a permit for this barbecue Barbecue Becky, right? Or some of the names that have been given hashtag on Twitter and so on, right? And so she argues that the common thread in the behavior of these women is the weaponization of their specific white womanhood, right? And that the recent viral fame of Karen behavior is a continuance of ways that white women have historically weaponized white womanhood in a racist manner. And so she looks at, you know, aspects of this, including the use of tears as a weapon, right? The use of the fact that white women are believed over black people and people of color, the exhibiting of racist fear, right? And calling in what likely will be a violent encounter for a person of color, right? And so in order to really contextualize that, we have to look at a history of white women's racism to understand what kind of undergirds that behavior, right? And so if we look at this long history that she's connecting back to, lynching, right? And we know about famous cases, mm-hmm. right? In which white women were used to weaponize, um, um, white women's tears were used to inflict violence on either um, black men or whole black communities. So we know of Emmett Till, right? In 1955, the whole that case that triggered the whole civil rights movement. He was visiting family in Mississippi, 14-year-old from Chicago, brutally murdered for flirting 
with a white woman. I was like looking at her provocative. What did he brush her hand? What justifies his flirting? Exactly. You know, I'm not, but I mean, this is a question that, and I will outline a slew of these where it's like heck on the cheek, eye contact, mm. right? You know, touch, brushing off the hand, brushing against someone in an elevator then turns into a lynching case. Mm. In the case of Emmett Till, his assailants, the white woman's husband and his brother, made Emmett carry 75-pound cotton gin to the bank of the Tallahatchie River, ordered him to take his clothes off. The, men, the people beat him to death, gorgeous his eye out, shot him in the head, threw his body in the river for allegedly flirting with the wife. That was just a popular one where, you know, Mammy Till Mobley had an open casket funeral for her son because she wanted the nation to see what hate had done. And that helped to galvanize the civil rights movement. But thousands of lynching had been done. We know in 1919 alone in the Red Summer, how many here in Arkansas, Elaine, how many lynchings were done. Another famous case, the Scottsboro Boys black teenagers who were falsely accused of raping two white women. I hope you've seen where this is all mm-hmm. going, right? Aboard a train near Scottsboro, Alabama in 1931, right? And the trials and retrials of the Scottsboro boys would eventually spark international uproar and produce um, landmark Supreme Court verdicts. Then we have another famous one, the 1921 attack on Greenwood, what Booker T. Washington had dubbed Black Wall Street. Greenwood, as we know in Tulsa, was recognized nationally for its affluent African-American community, right? A thriving black business and surrounding residential area, right? And we know that it would be the subject of one of the worst urban massacres. And you notice I'm not saying racial conflict. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying riot, Right. right. I'm choosing these words very carefully for very specific reasons that we'll discuss later on. Two days of violence in uh, Tulsa by whites against the black people in that community left an estimated 50 people dead, hundreds more injured, and over a thousand black owned homes and businesses. What are the value of those homes? What would they have been today if they got their insurance settlement, which was ruled out because it was labeled a riot instead of a massacre, right? And that was a clause in the insurance. It was initiated again when a black man named Dick Rowland stepped into an elevator operated by a white woman named Sarah Page. A scream was heard from inside the elevator. Roland ran out, and there's no conclusive evidence, but the white people in Tulsa believe that Roland had attempted to, what? Assault Page, right? He was arrested. Subsequent headlines that we'll be discussing later on. I'm in the local newspaper, stirred up by the whites. Talk about lynchings arose, right? Crowd of white people gathered outside the, the courthouse where Roland was held. A gun discharge while a white man was trying to disarm a black man, causing the larger conflict to erupt. We know that black people were greatly outnumbered. The National Guard declared martial law throughout the city and um, began rounding up black people for internment. And that was Tulsa. We know that a part of this is how it has been circulated 
in the popular media, right? So we have the case of the Karens. And then back in 1915, we had D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation, right, which largely publicized this. It was a groundbreaking film, groundbreaking in terms of its camera work, but it was based on the this book about the Klansmen. And it, it begins in the South after, you know, a defeated South, and where, you know, all that remains in the South to, to kind of preserve its honor is this idea of virtuous women. And so once this honor is threatened, many argue, the Ku Klux Klan is born, imposing an order to, to maintain that, to prevent chaos and to release the Southern whites from the heels of black people. And so this is why we get this epidemic of lynching. Obviously, there would be pushback against this. So the NAACP has been very active in this anti-lynching campaign. In 1915, when this film was released, people were paying $2 a ticket to go see this film. Apparently, that was a lot of money at the time. It was a lot of cheddar, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> but people were willing to pay it. So remember Woodward Wilson showed it at the White House and things like that. But the birth of a nation with its vicious stereotyping of black men as these rapists and these violent thugs, right, so enraged in WACP that they sought injunctions against theaters showing it. There were scuffles outside theaters and, you know, all kinds of things. We know another uh, person who launched an anti-lynching campaign is Ida B. Wells. Another big part of the drive behind these lynching was that it was as a result of resentment of the prosperity of black people, right? So economic competition from black people and the resentment of that from whites was a part of that. And what would spur Ida B. Wells into action was her friends, Thomas Moss, Calvin McDowell, and William Stewart, who had opened their People's Grocery Store in Memphis across the street from another grocer, W.R. Barrett, who was white, and they would be lynched. Their greatest crime was that they had competed successfully against a white store that once had a monopoly on the black trade. And so the animosity from this competition led to this violent face-off and the lynching of these co-owners of the people's uh, grocery store. Rather than being brought to trial, they were lynched in 1892. And Moss's dying words at the time was, tell my people to go west. There is no justice here for them. And this is what prompted Ida B. Wells, who was the editor of Memphis Free Speech, to begin her anti-lynching campaign. In episode seven of the podcast last season, we talked about the project here in Fayetteville where three African-Americans were lynched in the mid-19th century. And I think I talked about the case of the lynching, the heroin lynching of Sam Jose and W.E.B. Du Bois awakening to this lynching when he arrived in Atlanta. And he said, I found that this Negro Sam Jose had been caught and lynched and that in the meat market, which was on the way I had to pass, his fingers and toes were exhibited. Well, I didn't deliver the letter. I went back to Atlanta University and then I made up my mind that knowledge wasn't enough, that even if people were ignorant of essential matters, which they had to know, They wouldn't correct their actions without realization of just what the difficulties were. They had not only to know, but they had to act. And so I changed from studying the Negro problem 
to propaganda, to letting people know just what the Negro problem meant and what the colored people were suffering and what they were kept from doing. That is especially fitting today, that we're talking about how these things are circulated, what Du Bois realizing that he had to circulate this kind of information. We've talked a lot about this history of lynching and the gender perspective. And so, you know, I'm really happy today because what we're going to be getting at, right, the undisciplined nature of African and African-American studies, we're going to be also getting the journalistic perspective. Du Bois has his propaganda going for how he circulates this. When the NAACP makes that gigantic poster, a man was lynched today to show the ubiquitous nature of lynching. And so we get to talk about how lynching appears in journalism and how it's approached and studied. And so today with us, we have Rob Wells. He teaches data journalism, journalism theory, business reporting, and basic news reporting. Our other guest is Mary Hennigan, and she graduated from the University of Arkansas with her undergraduate degree in 2021. So you're fresh out, you're in the pandemic. She's a current graduate student here at the University of Arkansas. She was a previous intern at the Dow Jones News Fund Data. She also specialized in data-driven investigative work that focuses on the human impact of, of larger trends. We're very happy to talk to her today as well. Dr. Wells? And Mary, welcome to Undisciplined. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Dr. Wells, I'll start with you. Could you please tell me a little bit more about how journalism as a discipline is implicated in this history of lynching? Well, this is um, the subject of a, of a project that, that Mary's involved in. Is we're, we're going back and looking at at journalism, particularly in the post-Reconstruction era and the early you know, early 20th century, and how you know some of these these white supremacist narratives uh, were reflected in coverage of of lynching and so forth. The Howard Center for Investigative Journalism at University of Maryland identified you know some pretty standard kind of common tropes and narratives that would reflect cases where the journalists and the editors had kind of encouraged, enabled, or covered for, for, for lynching and, and unleashed a computer script across the Library of Congress, a historic newspaper database, and, and revealed a number of instances where there was really problematic and, and racist coverage of lynching in numerous uh, newspapers, particularly in the South. So that's been the, the sort of the current context of why uh, Mary and, and another student have been looking at, at lynching in, in the United States and in Arkansas. But more broadly, there's, um, there's a new book out right now with one of my, actually my, my editors wrote it. Her name is Kathy Roberts Ford at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And it's called Journalism and Jim Crow. And it takes a very close look at how, you know, this white supremacy was uh, represented in a number of Southern newsrooms. And her case study was looking at Henry Grady at the Atlanta Journal back in, um, in Georgia, and particularly how he was really supporting a lot of key tenets of the white, white supremacist political economy, particularly the prison labor uh, system. So it's, it's, 
it's manifest in a lot of different ways. And I think what's important about this project is journalism is an industry. It's a very powerful industry and it's, it needs to come to account, you know, for, for its behavior. We as journalists are always writing about other industries like pharmaceuticals or the poultry industry or what have you, you know, about, about their behavior. And so we're taking a fairly critical look in our own house and trying to, to come, you know, take account for, for what has happened in the past. You know, it's very interesting that so many different disciplines, right, are at this period of time in history where they're doing a little kind of this kind of a reflexive work of like looking at themselves and how their history is implicated. I remember talking to Dr. Ford and I t- remember talking about Dunning, the historian who helped to create the Dunning School of History and, you know, likened it to Grady. So is, is journalism on a whole having that kind of mea culpa, come to Jesus moment? What's going on? It, it's periodic, you know, it'll happen from, from place to place. The first time I saw that Marilyn Thompson, who's former editor of the Lexington Herald-Leader in Kentucky, and she's one of my heroes. She's an amazing investigative journalist. I think she's back at the Washington Post now. She was editor of this of this paper in the South, a very, very good paper. It's won a number of Pulitzer Prizes. And one of the photographers came to her and said, you know, we were just doing you know some research on civil rights coverage for for a story we're going to illustrate for the weekend. And we found all these negatives of protests at the lunch counters. And we kind of went to go look it up in the paper. None of these photos were ever printed. We, did, we didn't do anything with these photos. We just took the shots and killed the story. And so she ordered an investigation of her paper and its coverage of civil rights, and then ended up doing a big apology and printed all these lost photos, you know, and, and, and talked about how the Lexington Herald Leader had let its uh, readers down. And here is what we're going to do going forward and try to serve all of the community in a much more meaningful way. Probably the best example of kind of a mea culpa was Kansas City Star, which really investigated its coverage of the African-American community and apologized for just basically ignoring and, and then mischaracterizing the Black community for generations and talked about how this was manifest in political coverage and sports coverage and arts coverage. Like very, for, for me, it was just shocking that he did very little coverage of Charlie Parker. I mean, give me a break, you know, <laughs> come on. So it's not a universal trend, but Dr. Ford and, and Amherst, along with Sid Bedingfield, who is her collaborator at the University of Minnesota, are really at the sort of the leading edge in, in the journalism history movement to you know raise these questions about racism in the newsroom. Can you tell us about how you're seeing how these newspapers covered lynchings? Are there differences in how black and white newspapers covered lynchings at the time? Yes. So we did find that there was a difference in how black and white newspapers were covering lynching at the time. Differences in such as jargon, just using the word lynching in their reporting, for an example. The white narratives wouldn't always use the word lynching. They would use problematic language such as put to death or something that was much, I don't know, kind of skated around the truth of what had happened. And so in the case that I was doing on this project, I did not find any black newspaper coverage of the incident. So I only had the white narrative to go off of. And so I kept that in mind during my reporting. 
And I started to build the black narrative by talking with descendants, which I was very lucky to be able to do for this project. And so, yes, there is a difference. But with this project, um, I could not find that and use that in my examples. I'm wondering, because the black newspaper, the editors, are you guys observing that these tend to be, and this is a wider trend, you know, I often ask my students in my class, who are the white leaders? Show me the white leaders in the white community. Who would you go to? Who are the West respected white leaders? And so I'm wondering, are these editors white leaders in some regard in the same way that I'm sure these black editors take on these kind of leadership positions? You could trace that all the way back to some of the early newspapers from abolition, right? From the Colored American, from, you know, Frederick Douglass's newspaper, the North. They use that editorial parlay themselves into leadership. It was very much taking on the mantle of, you know, driving community awareness. So who are these editors and how do they position themselves in their community and across the South and in the United States? Do they get affluence from their coverage? Well, then they're enormously powerful individuals because they have a, a critical king-making and queen-making role in the political sphere. You know, who gets covered? You know, a publisher will, you know, set out some general, you know, editorial philosophy and, and their, their paper would tend to align with, with publishers' preferences in many cases. And there are some variations, but usually that would be at a, at a large uh, newspaper. Smaller papers would definitely been to the publishers will. There might be some variations where give some coverage of, for some, some folks that are not on the, f- the favored list, but it's um, with a lot of these that, that wouldn't last too long. They're enormously important in in basically the you know the economy of a of a local uh, community, and in bringing together all sorts of disparate actors into the newspaper realm and and legitimizing businesses and other forms of activity. So yes, uh, newspaper publishers just carry uh, enormous influence. But I'd like to just you know draw a little bit of a contrast to the black press and its tradition with you mentioned Ida B. Wells and and, and others. There's a tradition of of advocacy that is very, very deep in in the black press. And it, it comes out of necessity, just out of sheer survival. And this comes, uh, you know, there's sort of in conflict with the more standard narrative of journalistic objectivity, where you're supposed to, you know, not take sides and, and be neutral. Well, this is what um, this is what Dr. Ford and a lot of others are, are pointing out. You know, there is enormous value in the advocacy of Ida B. Wells and, and the Chicago Defender and uh, the Afro-American and so forth, in, in raising issues that go to the, the sheer survival of its readers. So um, they're really trying to reframe this notion of, of objectivity and, and kind of explore why the advocacy in these, uh, these black newspapers is just is essential and adds a lot to the historic record and shouldn't be you know, somehow swept aside just because they had a point of view. Absolutely. I can't tell you how that question of Black objectivity gets called into question, um, not only in journalism, but just for Black scholars, is that you cannot be objective because you as a Black person, and because of that, whole fields have been dominated by white people because of that belief that Black people cannot be objective studying the Black experience because they're going to take on that advocacy. 
Yeah, it, it's been dominated by a bunch of non-objective white people. <laughs> So I started this project in August at the start of the semester, and it became this four-month-long investigative piece. And I chose to report on St. Charles because when I was assigned and I was doing my first initial reading, I found one article by Guy Lancaster who gave a pretty good account of what happened. But then when I went to search for additional information, I found almost nothing. And so that was really daunting to me at first because when you go into a project, you want to have something to be able to read to get some background on. But... Realistically, I had to create a lot of the content with original interviews and finding the history myself. And so when I was looking at the newspaper accounts, I had to keep in mind of what wasn't reported and what wasn't there. When I visited the town of St. Charles and I was taken around by a source, a lot of the knowledge just wasn't there. She was telling me that she doesn't know where this warehouse was because it wasn't remembered. Their Hopewell Church, which helped to educate their black community, was taken down. And so there's no history there within the town that helps to commemorate this event. And so what does exist in the newspaper reports is incomplete history. And so that is what my article looked at, is that erasure. And so, yes, there was a difference between if a black newspaper publication had been able to report on this event. I'm sure that the coverage would have been different. But the evidence of the lack of interviews in the newspaper reports that we do have are very telling as well. I just want to jump in here a second. You know, what what Mary Hennigan did here in this project was provide an enormous public service to all uh, Arkansans by documenting a very, very serious and tragic part of, of the state's history that, that many people had never heard of. And not only that, she talked to seven relatives of, of the massacre you know, victims. And so there is now, because of her work as a University of Arkansas journalism student, a significant amount of, of history that's being uncovered that even professional historians did not even get. So, Mary, you talk about how you arrive at the story. What makes what what stands out about St. Charles to you? What makes you pick St. Charles? Is it the the sheer gore of it? Is it because of the erasure as you I mean, you wouldn't have known about the erasure initially, but what draws you to this story as you're doing your background research and reading and so on? So like I mentioned, it was kind of that first initial finding of not finding anything. Mm-hmm. And while it was daunting, the the incident, 13 black men killed in three days. I thought that was too significant to ignore. Right. And so that was the story that I wanted to cover. And I couldn't find much information on it. And so I was going to find people to talk to so they could tell me about the story. You know, when I talk to my family about this project that I'm working on, they're like, you're doing an investigative piece on lynching. Like, why would you choose to write on lynching? And it's a strange question to ask me, But I think that, you know, this is history that or an incident that was covered in the newspaper, but there were parts left out. And so revisiting this case, I think, was an effort to complete some of the reporting that was done 117 years ago. 117 years. Complete that. So the parts that were left out. This is a question that, you know, us as historians, we call the silences the story. 
So how do you get at this story then if there are parts left out? You mentioned doing interviews. Who do you interview How to get this story? Right. So at the beginning, when I wasn't finding anything, it was hard to find people to talk to. So I started with historians, people who I hoped would have a lot of information on it. And I found that it was widely unknown. I talked with authors in the state. I reached out to the Little Rock branch of the NAACP, and it was still widely unknown. So then we decided to start looking for descendants. And so I went online, I used genealogical websites, and I was putting in the names of the victims. And there were 13 victims, so I thought, surely, someone, one out of 13, there will be a descendant on here. And one did. Out of the 13 that I searched, one had a descendant listed on Ancestry.com. So I reached out to her, and she gave me a wonderful interview, and she also opened the door to many other people I could talk to. So once that initial interview began, I was able to reach out to more people, and I eventually got seven relatives from the descendants of the victims. And so through those interviews, some of them told me that they had not known of this incident for decades. They found it, they stumbled upon it during their hobby of genealogical history, and then they shared the information. But a few people, their history was passed down through oral storytelling. And so those interviews I thought were very valuable because they had the more firsthand accounts to provide the context that wasn't in the newspaper reports. And so those were some of the details that I could help to build the story to help to complete the story. And one woman, her name is Janice Streeter, her grandfather, great-grandfather, lived through the lynching. And so he was able to provide, his story was able to provide details of what he saw, where the people were taken, how they were killed. And so that I thought was really significant to add to the story. And so all of these things that I found out now made me very happy that I chose the story that didn't have a lot of history on it already. In a typical investigative journalism project, you rely very heavily on documents and and that and, and data. And in this case, the documents and the data would have been, you know, mostly created by the white community and they didn't exist. So what Mary had to do here was enormously difficult for, for any journalist, especially a graduate student. <laughs> and it's just a, a, a you know, a remarkable achievement that uh, she was able to contact these people and then get them to talk to her and then to have them share these these very painful and intimate memories, family memories. I was the fact checker on this on this article, and I called everybody who was quoted in this more than two thousand word piece, and had some very long conversations with them. It was uh, it was it was just outstanding how she was able to to unlock this important chapter. It's quite interesting, right? So I hear that for you guys as a discipline too, right? This kind of evidence is necessary. So it's the same in history. And it's interesting as you're you're talking about this case where there was not a black newspaper account. And historians encounter that all the time. Like, how do you write a narrative about slavery without the slave's voice or about Native Americans without the Native American voice who didn't perhaps, if people didn't have a tradition of leaving documents behind in a society that relies heavily on documents as providing the only usable form of evidence? How do you do that? And I was very impressed when you talked about the erasure, right? The missing church church 
how that is in, in itself evidence. Mary, I want to ask you, what did you discover? What did the white newspaper say? And what did the stories that you uncovered from the oral history and interviews say? What's the difference? The Arkansas, the then Arkansas Gazette did original reports on the 1904 massacre in St. Charles. And those reports covered the week-long event. And during that week, 13 black men were killed. So the conflict began on a Monday as two black men Black men joined a white man for gambling on a houseboat. An argument arose and the white man was injured and then this is what started everything. So after the first conflict, the county's white residents began to gather together and form a posse. People from neighboring towns also came to St. Charles to join. And these things were reported in the newspaper. In the Arkansas Democratic Gazette? Yes, at the time it was the Arkansas Gazette. Okay. So yes, those things were reported and I brought these up to the descendants and I wanted to know like, is this accurate to the oral history that you know or the other stories that you know? And it's hard because it was so long ago and because their relatives who told them the stories are no longer living. So we can't go back and ask them those questions. A lot of the information that they also have about the event is the newspaper reports, but there was a large chunk missing from the newspaper accounts. So speaking with the descendants, they told me about a warehouse. And this warehouse was where the white posse gathered black people. And they were told that it would be for their protection. And so when the source was taking me through the town of St. Charles, she was able to take me through the farmland and tell me this is where the white posse on horseback plucked black people from their home and brought them to this warehouse. And then in this warehouse, they questioned them. And they don't know what they asked them. They don't know really any details about what happened in the warehouse, but we do know that five men were taken and a mob overpowered the guards at the jail where those men were taken and they were shot publicly. And then also because the descendants' relatives lived through this event, we now have details about how they were killed, how one of them had their teeth stomped down their throat. And so it's details like this that the newspaper did not report. They did not interview any African Americans for the original reports, but those details did exist. Those details were not commemorated in a museum. There are no handwritten notes that I can find. And so being able to include these details was something that had never existed before. And so that is mainly what was missing, was these key parts of why were these men taken? Why were these men killed? And so there was no challenge of, of basically this mob violence in the newspaper accounts. What were they charged with? Well, somehow being defiant, right? Defiant to whom? Defiant, yes, to the white officers, but that was all the detail that was given. And so we're not, we're not sure. So there was no, no follow-up in, in, in terms of civil legal procedure. What were the charges? Who is being investigated? Was there a grand jury convened to find out who murdered these people? And, and none of that was present, right, Mary, in, in the coverage? Correct. So in this story and in other stories, because there's a whole database now emerging that is kind of tracking, as you mentioned, the Printing Hate Project, you're encountering in terms of voices that are present, silences, word choices. What other issues did you, dis, um, you know, encounter as you were trying to write this story? There are issues related to the project. 
and I can talk about those. But I really want to talk about the personal conflicts that I faced okay. with this story. And maybe conflict is the wrong word, but I was emotionally involved in this story. And it was a very taxing story to write. So doing history on lynching all day long and then talking with the descendants and hearing these heartbreaking stories, it really started to personally affect me. Mm-hmm. And so some nights I wasn't able to sleep and I'm getting teary-eyed still now, but this is the truth of investigating. <laughs> I'm sorry. Investigative reporting is very taxing on someone. And so I'm very happy to have to tell the story, but I really got involved with the story and not in a way where I feel like I put my bias into the story. I really covered all the bases. I talked with the community members. I reached out several times to get the both sides, all sides. I looked everywhere, high and low. Mm-hmm. But just being really involved in this history was emotional. why this lynching is not as well known as, say, the Emmett Till or the Elaine Massacre, and your story will help to bring that to light. But can you tell us the difference between St. Charles then and now? What's happened, what, you know, black population, demography, that kind of stuff, and now? Yeah, so we were lucky to find census records, and so that was a document that we were able to use in the reporting. Wonderful. So there was a labor migration that brought a lot of African Americans to Southeast Arkansas to do farming. So the population then was a little bit higher than it is today, so it was about 31% at the 1900 census. Now it is about 24 25%, and that is in the county. So I apologize if I said town. That's Arkansas County um, African American population percent. So um, when I visited St. Charles, a lot of the the streets were different. Things were taken down, reconstructed. I mean, we're talking over a century ago, so this would happen almost anywhere, is developments. They built a bridge. It's right on the White River. And so in 1904, I mentioned the houseboat earlier. You know, that was really common. A lot of people had their houseboats docked on the river. They had a ferry that took people across the river, and people came to work in St. Charles. Now there's a bridge with with a major highway way and, you know, new places for houses and where you were able to walk to school through the woods or on a path is now, you know, a little settlement. And so those are some differences. Um, But the town and the county are still dominated by agriculture. They still have fishing, um, cotton fields, soybean fields, and rice fields. The Stuttgart, also in Arkansas County, is the rice and duck capital of the world. And so those those things are very prominent in the county today, and they were also um, a century ago, too. And you're saying that um, lots of the black places are no longer in existence. Um, the, that monument to black life as it existed then is no longer there. And as you're talking about roads and bridges, also reminds me of our podcast with um, um, Eric Hughes, right, which talks about all the efforts to destroy black communities by building roads and bridges through black communities, either through eminent domain, using eminent domain, um, urban renewal 
And Henry Grady, interestingly, came up um, in his, you know, work in Atlanta that, you know, causes all that traffic that people have to sit in in Atlanta with that rigmarole highway system that was constructed out of pure racism. Um, but um, I think you did mention that... Um, so the, the, the lynching in St. Charles is not well known, and their efforts to memorialize other things in St. Charles? So there is a large Civil War memorial on the main road in St. Charles, right outside of the museum. And so this memorial, it probably stands 15 or 20 feet. It's pretty large. It's wide. It's right in the middle of the street. So you kind of got to drive around it. By Civil War memorial, do you mean Confederate memorial? So there are both Confederate and Union soldiers' names listed okay. on this memorial. It is the Battle of St. Charles. It's commemorating that. And I believe it was in the 1860s when that happened. So I wanted to use that last bit there to talk about the St. Charles lynching and where does it fit in the larger narrative of lynchings in Arkansas, the South, and the Midwest. How would you um, situate it? So the newspaper coverage, um, the original reports from the Gazette were republished pretty widely. They were in at least 21 states. And it was Washington. republished in 21 states? Yes, at least 21 states and Washington, D.C. So the coverage was spread pretty, pretty widely. And while the content in those reports stayed mostly the same, the headlines did change. And so when the headlines um, were changed, people could kind of sway the narrative a little bit. So they were no longer relying on strictly the Gazette reporting. They were adding in some words or maybe they even added errors um, some of them just got the number of dead incorrect. They reported the wrong county, but those small mistakes are important to the whole story. Um, some of the headlines were very vague, but they were very casual. And so an example is two more slain, and you just already know what's going on, and you know what the story is about. Um, they were published next to piano sales and clothing ads, and so this was... At the time, lynching coverage was pretty common, and it was everyday news. And so you could do a headline such as, Two More Slain, and your readers would know what you're talking about. It's almost like runaway slave ads, right, or being printed, or, or, or um, slaves for sale ad printed next to other commodities, you know, during the 18th century or whatever the case might be. Yeah, so. and one state historian told me that, you know, this was just— Lynching was seen as something that was part of the ongoing landscape. Yeah. And so at the time of the reporting, you know, maybe they just didn't get the full story. They didn't bother to gather the details because it was something so common. Looking at the, the coverage in the other uh, newspapers, just how brief it was. And it's like in other news. It's an aside. An aside and something to kind of is sort of to fill out, you know, the, the back part of the paper. So this is a horrible <laughs> you know, tragic event. And it's just, this happened down in Arkansas, by the way. As a white reporter, how do you go into this space and this very vulnerable story, this very nuanced thing that you're trying to do? And how do you garner the trust of these folks? Uh, as, as someone who's an outsider in, in a lot of different ways, how did you find yourself gaining the trust that they would tell you the things that you needed to get the reporting right. Yeah, so I am a young white woman, and a lot of the people I was talking to were outside of my demographic, even in terms of age, males, African-Americans. So I wasn't really 
I wasn't related to any of them in a sense. And building trust is something that's very important to me with sources. That is probably the utmost important. Um, I went into every interview objectively. I wanted them to tell me the story. I didn't, you know, a typical journalistic approach is to draft questions before an interview. I didn't draft many questions. I wanted them to tell me their experience. I wanted them to tell me their story. I educated myself beforehand. You know, I if they told me they didn't know about the St. Charles incident, I had some information to give them. So I could tell them about what had happened and they would have, you know, a response. And even if they didn't know, they could say, you know, I don't know about this, but it's because I don't have much time to look into that because I'm still dealing with so much of my own problems today that I can't look at my own family history from a century ago. So the interviews that I conducted lasted very long. Once I started building that, once they knew who I was, once they knew I wanted them to talk to me, I wanted to tell their story, we talked for hours. You know, I don't think I had an interview less than 30 minutes. And so a lot of the, I, I produced a lot of content with them and they were sharing vulnerable moments with me. You know, sometimes things not directly related to the story, but that's important too. You know, I wanted to hear them. I wanted to include them in the story. This was the first time pretty much that we were able to hear the black narrative of the story. So, you know, the interviews were not about me. <laughs> and I think that that is what helps to build trust. And, you know, maybe I'm tooting my own horn, but I think that that's what makes me a pretty okay journalist is that I'm going into it objectively and I wanna hear what you have to tell me. And then I'll ask you a couple questions in between. And this isn't the first time that Mary's been able to conduct really sensitive uh, interviews with a wide range of, of people outside of her, her background. She did uh, worked with uh, Rachel Sanchez Smith and Abby Samardi on a major investigation of COVID in the workplace that involved talking to a lot of Hispanic poultry workers. And uh, she also did a very fine and a really tragic story about a uh, Springdale woman who was Hispanic who had passed away from COVID, talked to her family. So I, I've spoken to uh, many people that Mary has, has interviewed in the process of fact-checking this, and she uh, has a way of, of, uh, of coming in prepared and ready to listen, which is uh, just a wonderful, wonderful uh, foundation for a journalism career. Is that is that in terms of journalism school and you know what I mean? Is is that the approach to this kind of subject to in in terms of um, gaining the trust of the sources? Is just the willingness to listen uh, and adding that critical lens to it? Is that is that what is encouraged in terms of I don't know? Is that a part of the diversity and inclusion drive by journalism school? That's that's just that's just good journalism. That's from the very beginning. It's just showing up prepared and ready to listen. And then trying to, to create a, you know, a faithful report from that. Yeah, you know anyone I would talk to, no matter who it was, I would wanna have a conversation with them as my interview goes. I'm not there to job interview them, I'm there to talk to them. And so that's how I went into every interview that I've ever done. <laughs> and I think that it comes out okay most of the time. So um, you also spoke with the owner of the Democratic Gazette, am I correct? The current owner? The publisher, yes. The pu yeah. Yeah. So, so how did that go? 
you know, it was a, also a pretty good phone call. It lasted about 30 minutes. We had a conversation. Who is this owner? And His name is a- Walter Hussman Jr. He's mm-hmm. the publisher of the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. His mm-hmm. daughter is the current managing editor of the paper. Her name is Eliza Gaines. I did not get to uh, speak with her, um, but we had some communication. But my uh, conversation with Mr. Hussman was a lot about his reflection on himself and as the paper. And he spoke with me about what the paper is doing today to avoid some of the problematic coverage in the past. He talked about the anniversary, the 200th anniversary of the paper, where they took each year of the publication and republished it within the 200 days leading up to their anniversary. And he said that that was a way to remember this history. And he did mention... Um, one of the lynching in the state in Little Rock, and he said that during that year, um, they used reporting from that time, although he did not say he was familiar with the St. Charles massacre, and that that was not included in their anniversary. It's interesting that we are having all this reckoning now, and, you know, someone like Walter uh, Husband, who's been implicated in Nicole Hannah-Jones's situation in at the University of North Carolina, where... The School of Journalism is named after him, and it's widely reported that he was a part of the reason why she was denied tenure, right, because he didn't, he objected. (laughs) It's interesting, you know, given what we're talking about, journalism and black reporting, white reporting, and so on. He objected to some of the things that she published in the 1619 Project to have him now be reckoning about the Democratic Gazette's role in the reporting of these kinds of lynching. So it would be very fascinating indeed um, to really, um, you know, get a, you know, a full picture of all of those kinds of things um, where the Gazette is concerned and Mr. Husband in particular. Yeah, I think that's a really good avenue for your future exploration and research. <laughs> yes. No, yes. really. I think that really. we will be further exploring that. Uh, we don't have that at the, the now. Right. Dr. Wells and Ms. Hennigan, thank you so very much for joining Matt and I here on Undiscipline. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate you having us on. Yeah. Thank you so much. Undisciplined is hosted by Dr. Karee Banton and produced and co-hosted by me, Matthew Moore. Our assistant producer is Sean Shoemaker. Undisciplined is a collaboration between the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas, Ozarks at Large, and KUAF. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.